Well, we've mentioned on the show before, I love the Arch the Arch Linux wiki because yeah. it explains everything and the reasons behind it. Uh-huh. And none of us run Arch, but we all use the wiki because it's yeah. so, so good. It is amazingly well done documentation set for Linux. It's the spiritual, spiritual successor to the um, Jintu wiki that had that horrible crash. It's still around. You just have to compile it every time. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Ken Mink. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. We're here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking with Seth McCombs about Kubernetes and stuff. Are you interested in spreading and promoting practical experience in the operations, DevOps, and SRE spaces? Consider sponsoring the Practical Operations Podcast. Contact us at sponsor at operations.fm for details. Thank you for coming on the show, Seth. Thanks for having me, y'all. I'm excited to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about your involvement and what you're doing these days? Um, Yeah, so uh, I'm about a month into uh, a new gig. I am a uh, cloud orchestration and software development engineer at Workday, um, working on our Kubernetes stack and things like that. Um, And then in my free time, um, I spend some time working in the Kubernetes community on the release team. Um, I have been a part of the docs team in the past that has tapered off a little bit. Um, and, you know, just in the kind of in the in the general security space and just kind of trying to be a, a friendly face in the Kubernetes community and uh, and help more people uh, join what I think is an, an awesome uh, open source project and, uh, and a great group of people. Can I just say how awesome your docs are? You know, I'm I'm one of, you know, countless people that that helps. Uh, with those those docs and a big shout out to the uh, the docs uh, co-chairs uh, for that that SIG that special interest group, um, but that was one of the things that really drew me to this project uh, when I first started uh, looking into it uh, because I don't come from a standard software developer background. I, I am more of an ops guy, and so in finding something with just an amazing you know one stop shop of of documentation, you know that is a requirement, um, and we can you know dive more into that, but. In order for new Kubernetes features or changes to ship, uh, documentation is a requirement in order for them to go live, even in an, an alpha state. So uh, there is, you know, to the best of our ability, no real undocumented part of Kubernetes, at least on the user-facing side of things. And the documentation is just of of oddly, strangely high quality, of something I'm not used to seeing in the open source world. And it makes me, as a newcomer to Kubernetes, it, it makes me feel right at home I can easily Google parts of what I'm trying to look up, find the right documentation, and it's helpful. And that's that's made learning Kubernetes a lot easier than than other things. Yeah, yeah, I definitely I uh, I second that. You know, when I was first diving into Kubernetes a few years back, and and there's been multiple iterations of the the doc site. You know, and they they maintain uh, prior versions. You know, the the, the three prior versions of Kubernetes uh, documentation. You know, may not be updated. Um, you know, to bring some things in line, but you can you can really kind of see how this stuff has changed over time, and it's it's been something that the whole community's been really uh, passionate about, um, keeping everything up to speed and allowing people to really dive in and not just read API specs, but really learn and and play around yeah. with this stuff. Yeah, there's so many tools that I've used that the documentation is either laughably bad, or you know, the documentation for the method name is this method name does. And then you break the method name apart by the, the the underscores or the spaces in it or whatever, and you're like, oh, well, I could have just inferred that from well, what you Well, the code wrote. is self-documenting, isn't it? 
<laughs> very much so. Very much so. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's it, the Kubernetes documentation is great. I find I have two doc sites bookmarked. I have the Kubernetes documentation and then I have the Arch Wiki because it's just a great source of all the Linux <laughs> stuff. But between that, that seems to fit most of my needs. Um, but I don't run Arch Linux, by the way. So you, you alluded to the fact that you started um, coming up from the ops side of things and you were kind of working your way in on documentation. If you were starting now and you had an interest in getting involved in the Kubernetes community, either as a developer or as a user, what would you recommend people like start working on first, start digging into first? I think um, the best place to start is to follow some of the um, the kind of the the basics and the um, the different things the doc the doc sites point out for for trying Kubernetes, you know, installing local clusters like Minikube or things like that to just kind of have a basic understanding of of what some of these things mean, your basic cube cuddle commands and things like that. I really don't think you need to have a lot of operational experience in running Kubernetes or things like that. You know, obviously that would help if you've been running it for a while or you, you start learning how to use it in a in a dev or production environment and then kind of want to work your way into the development side of things that definitely wouldn't hurt. Um, but I think, um, you know, the best way to dive in is to hop into the, um, the Kubernetes Slack and maybe kind of keep a narrow focus for a little bit uh, because the Kubernetes Slack is one of the biggest Slack orgs and there are so many places to look, but there is a really robust uh, contributor experience uh, special interest group, uh, SIG, which is really its core uh, purpose is to get everyone involved that wants to be involved and make sure that they are not only um, understood from a technical standpoint, but feel welcomed. And, you know, we, we cater that towards an inclusive environment um, and make sure that no one really gets, gets turned away or gets turned off from working in this project because uh, something was, was hard or uncomfortable or, or things like that. So there is a a core group of people in this project that their job in this open source community is to make sure that other people can be involved. You know, so we call it ContribX, Contributor Experience. Um, and we do, you know, office hours based on time zones where you can come and ask questions. All the governance for this project uh, in terms of all the bits and pieces is out in the open. So, you know, as you dive in, you'll you'll start to learn some of the different bits and pieces of how how things are, are tracked via GitHub issues and pull requests and things like that. But uh, unless it's a really, really high level, serious decision, most everything is made uh, in the open. So there's there's no secrets. It's it's truly open source. How uh, how involved is Google in that process? Uh, so there's been a there's been a big uh, change over time in Google's involvement. You know, as, as a lot of people know, um, Kubernetes came out of Google. Uh, you know, Craig, Joe, and Brendan, you know, a lot of the guys that, that first kicked off that project, it was it was based on Google's um, Google's learnings from their Borg, uh, you know, container management engine. It's, it's you know, Borg and Kubernetes are not the same. Um, but uh, because of that, you know, a lot of the CI originally was using Bazel, Basil, however you want to pronounce it, you know, the open source Blaze, you know, CI <laughs> that... Um, Yep. Yep. I know some, it sounds like some people have worked with that before. Um, yeah. So there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of Google based technologies there. We've moved away from, from a lot of, of that and continue um, oh, to, uh, yeah, there's, there's, yeah. Um, yeah. So there's, there's a removal of some of that stuff in a lot of the CI jobs, a lot of custom uh, tooling has been built. Um, but 
due to the way the, the actual Kubernetes container images and like devs and RPMs are hosted, there is still a bit of involvement um, on the Google side. You know, we do have a few um, um, people that, that, you know, need to cut our builds and, and push images and things like that. But there's an ongoing process right now to move all of that into uh, Kubernetes and, and CNCF managed, you know, uh, GCP environments and, and you know, using their, um, their image um, artifact repository and, uh, and all that. And, and Google's been great. You know, they, they donated a, a bunch of money in, in cloud credits to the CNCF a couple times to say basically, you know, here, this is for, for Kubernetes and, and, and the build infrastructure and, and things like that. So that's awesome. Yeah, they were, they've been really great. You know, they, they, you know, Kubernetes is what really kicked off the, the CNCF side of things. And there are a lot of people who, at Google, you know, whose job is to just make Kubernetes better, you know, and, and there's a reason that GKE Google Kubernetes engine is, is, you know, the, the best in, in terms of managed uh, Kubernetes services, but you know, there, there may be people um, that work there that are involved in decision-making and things like that, but there are guardrails in the Kubernetes uh, leadership charters and, and things like that to make sure that, you know, there are not too many people from Google or Microsoft or IBM or insert any company here to make sure that, you know, on a committee of six people making decisions, there's not four people from Google. You know, there are there were decisions made early and, and continue to be made to make sure that this is truly open and no one company can really steer this project where they want it to go was that something that was uh kind of pushed on from the kubernetes committee or community in general or is that more from the cncf you know i really don't know um i think i think the decision to make it open source and to learn from some of the failings of of some others open source projects not you know not calling the, the Linux kernel a failed project, but, you know, you still have one person at the top of it that makes a lot of those decisions. Um, and, you know, a lot of the original um, maintainers that are that are still involved, you know, really pushed to make sure that this was uh, an open and, and fair and balanced, you know, government's model for this project, as well as um, there have been concerns raised over time by people in the community, you know, around these things. And, and there's just been a, a push to make sure, um, you know, because we're all learning. You know, Kubernetes is, is really, I think, a great template in terms of how to govern and manage an open source project, but not every open source project is going to be as ubiquitous and, and large in terms of code base and number of contributors uh, as Kubernetes. Um, but, you know, there's there's a lot of learning and, and growing pains that, that Kubernetes has been through in the, you know, six or seven years that it's been around. So it sounds like the Kubernetes folks, and this, this bears up from my experience with kind of using their tools and those things, that they have very intentionally built a very good culture around, you know, tech cleanliness habits of documentation, but also about trying to run the organization in a purposeful way and not letting it happen to them instead of instead of guiding that growth and trying to make sure that growth goes in the right directions at the right speed with the right kinds of people. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. There has been, um, you know, uh, every time there's a issues opened or, or pull requests or discussions in Slack or things like that, you know, there is a very robust uh, code of conduct and, and agreement that you need to uh, agree to to participate uh, in a lot of these, you know, Kubernetes and Kubernetes adjacent uh, environments and, and tools and, and things like that. And it's it's rather loose in terms of the things you can do. Um, but you know, the best um, you know the the best um, way to distill it down, and this is kind of you know something we say at the beginning of all these SIG calls is 
you know, the, the code of conduct basically boils down to be excellent to each other. So you can, you know, you can joke and say it's kind of that golden rule thing, but, you know, you're allowed to be there. You can have your opinions. You can contribute. Uh, we want as many people with diverse voices involved, um, but you need to make sure that your involvement isn't pushing out, you know, uh, someone else or making someone else um, uncomfortable in a lot of these these spaces. And, and that's just been something that we've been moving forward um, towards, you know, especially over this year with the, uh, you know, 2020 with the introduction of uh, the naming work group, you know, to bring more inclusive naming to a lot of things, you know, you guys have been in the ops world for a while, so we all know the the problematic uh, nature of the master-slave distinction, um, you know, and, and blacklist, whitelist, things like that. So even, even things that seem intangible like that are things that there are people in this community that are thinking about and that they care about and are, are really working to to make sure this is, is a place where people can, you know, flex some of their tech muscle or their documentation muscle or, or things like that, but can really feel at home and, and make, you know, this is going to sound really cheesy, but make lifelong friends. You know, I've met some of my best friends through this project. Yeah, I've noticed that the the, the just the healthiness around the project has been great. Uh, and the reason I was asking about the CNCF, because I've noticed some of the projects that come out of CNCF also seem to have that same spirit with them. And, and as you mentioned, just due to the size, uh, the Kubernetes project can really excel in a lot of those areas. However, I still see some of those... Uh, the same of the same some of the same mentality really extend to some of the other projects that have are are from the CNCF as well. Yep, definitely. You know, there's there's a lot of um, you know, it's it's kind of a you know, looking both forwards and backwards in that way. In that, a lot of the the governance and requirements to be a CNCF project were born out of you know what Kubernetes did, as it was you know the first project uh, to go through the flow and and graduate as as they say. Uh, from you know the CNCF sandbox and, and incubation, so the the best projects that that really fit that that mold and and check those boxes uh, are accepted into the CNCF, and you know it it benefits everyone that uses these projects, that is you know involved in these projects to to check these boxes and to be open and and you know have these these good standards and, and processes to really fit into this this CNCF ecosystem because you know it all. It's all connected at the end of the day. Okay, so there's a lot of talk about security right now with Kubernetes in the, in the security space in terms of add-on layers and projects. Um, full disclosure, Seth and I both worked for Sysdig for quite a while, and they do a container security product, and they work a, very heavily in the Kubernetes space. Um, recently, Stackrocks was purchased by IBM as part of their their push towards container security where do you see that kind of stuff going? Like, obviously, there's a need if there's enough of these companies that are doing startup work and kind of running headlong to solve these problems. Um, where do you see that kind of stuff going right now? So, I think there's a there's a couple directions that this is moving. You know, I think there's there's a, a real reason why companies like Stackrocks and Aqua and Sysdig are doing well in the security space. In that, you know, and this isn't this isn't a uh, a, um, an, a conscious decision on the Kubernetes side of things that it's very insecure by default. You know, a lot of these projects are. Um, and so what a lot of these, these tools and these companies that provide these services for container, Kubernetes, cloud security, things like that is, it's just, it's making it easy. It's bubbling it up to the surface, you know? So I think we're going to see 
um, more established players um, kind of make their way through that, you know, Stack Rocks um, and, and Red Hat joining forces, you know, we'll see what that looks like. You know, Sysdig has their container security uh, platform. Aqua Security is also there. Um, so I think we're going to see, you know, continued growth from these companies involved in that space, as well as maybe some new players uh, doing things differently or, you know, the same with a different logo. Uh, who knows? But I think the other uh, bigger thing is that a lot of these best practices and things like that are really starting to uh, work their way kind of back into Kubernetes upstream. You know, recently there was the formation of the security um, special interest group, you know, SIG security on the Kubernetes side of things to really work uh, towards, you know, securing a lot of these things. There's been, uh, you know, the growth of everything from uh, pod security policies, network policies, tools like the open policy agent, you know, um, and, and Kubernetes gives you the ability to do a lot of these things. They're just not on by default. And where a lot of these companies really excel is that they maybe give you a dashboard or a nice interface to just maybe check a box and the API under the hood kind of turns on those Kubernetes bits and pieces, um, you know, needed to, to lock things down and, and make your cluster more, uh, more secure. And, and then also, you know, um, just the, uh, the robust um, tracking and and monitoring around you know any CVE, but you know I'm sure we've all heard of you know the two or three that have come out in the past you know year uh, related to Kubernetes and you know kind of the open um, triage and fixing of that kind of stuff you know really shows that the project's not trying to hide anything um, and at the end of the day it's code written by humans. You know, and there will be bugs, there will be mistakes, and we're going to try our best to to fix them and plug all the holes and just build a, a really rock-solid system. Yeah, anybody who's been in the operations space for any length of time knows how difficult most security tools are to configure correctly. A lot of them, they're easy to stand up, but getting it right can be a real problem. So I do like some of these security products for Kubernetes spaces because you just sort of apply it to the cluster, and as long as you use same defaults, it gives you a pretty reasonable working start, unlike a lot of other tools. Yeah, a lot of these um these you know these APIs and 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 standards that that Kubernetes has running, you know, your network policies, your pod security policies, your things like that, you could sit there for hours and days on end and, and learn how to configure these properly and things like that. But there's real benefit to these um, these companies that come in and and kind of give you um, a one-stop shop to just kind of turn on your sane defaults, your best practices, your things like that. You know, more and more over time, um, I think it was Liz from Aqua Security said Kubernetes is, is kind of boring. Everybody's going to have a cluster or everybody's working towards having Kubernetes clusters. And it's really how you use it and and what you can do on top of it that matters. And, and that's, you know, security is, is key in, in that regards. What are some of your other favorite add-ons, you know, what other things do you see as a, oh, you must have this on top of your cluster type of things. I, I, I built, started learning about building a cluster from scratch and yeah, I got it functional, but doing everything at low level, you know, I know I did things wrong. <laughs> I wouldn't so. say it's a requirement, um, but I'm really interested and I know a lot of people are in a lot of things around service meshes. Uh, everything from, you know, the metrics and observability that that can expose uh, for you, 
uh, tools like Istio with its Envoy proxy or, or Linkerd um, are, are, you know, Linkerd is one I'm a, a big fan of. Um, I've used that in, in, in past roles. Um, and it's just, I'm a big fan of watching things as they move through my cluster. Um, so, uh, and, and, you know, a lot of these tools allow you, um, various forms of, of, uh, mutual TLS, uh, to keep things, uh, locked up in transit. Um, and so I don't think that's a requirement. They can add some overhead to your cluster. It's yet another thing to configure. Um, but I think, you know, that's definitely something that should be on the list for review for your, you know, your day two or day three operations, um, to, to quote a phrase I'm, you know, not a huge fan of, um, and then your, uh, secondly, I would say, um, just the, the, um, ability to do, uh, really cool things, um, around the customization and, and of controllers and, and operators in your, in your cluster. You know, when I first joined, um, or, you know, first started learning about Kubernetes, you know, you learned all the, the keywords, your deployments, your pods, your services, your things like that. Um, but it's really eye opening when you start to realize that that's not where everything, that's not the, you know, the, the beginning and the end of the stuff you can, you can run in, in Kubernetes, you know, you can write custom controllers to manage, um, a database and all the storage and the networking it needs and, and things like that, you know, the, the custom resource definitions that you can write for Kubernetes are, are incredibly powerful. And again, something that, you know, just another thing to keep an eye on and to, to configure, um, but you can really kind of teach the platform to understand the applications that, that it's running, um, aside from just your standard, you know, uh, readiness and, and liveness probes and, and really, you know, code in some custom logic um, that makes it easier for your, your ops teams uh, and your developers that are, you know, tasked with, with keeping this running. At our previous job, we did some, some Cassandra um, work to, to kind of relieve some of that, again, that day two toil of automating certain things about the cluster that you really don't want to be doing by hand, but need to be done at some point. And so being able to leverage that really was eye-opening to me about how a lot of these pieces actually work under the covers. And I recommend anybody who is unfamiliar with what we're talking about right now to go start poking around in this space because it does greatly magnify the usability and the usefulness of Kubernetes. Definitely, definitely. There's great, you know, frame, the operator framework is, is great. There's uh, Cube Builder. Um, you know, both of these, you know, Cube Builder comes with a, Cube Builder comes with a lot of, um, templating and, and standardized things you'd need. It's, it's meant to write, you know, these operators in, in Go, uh, because there's a lot of robust, you know, native Kubernetes things built into the, the Golang, um, spec, uh, and things like that. And it's just a really cool way to unlock some, some powerful stuff in your, in your cluster. Are operators just CRDs? So I've, I've seen a few different ways to describe this, um, you can you can write a custom controller that'll kind of uh, watch those standard Kubernetes objects and say maybe restart a, uh, pods in a deployment every time a config uh, config map or secret is updated you know and things like that um, and and that's something that that a lot of people have dabbled in and I um, I was reading a a blog the other day that that said they kind of started drawing the delineation. Um, that it changes from a custom controller to a full-fledged operator uh, when you start managing custom resources. You know, so when 
when you start adding things into um, the Kubernetes, you know, API, and you can, you know, you run your kubectl get pods service things like that. When you're adding custom resources like kubectl get database or things like that, and you're really kind of teaching your cluster about some some new um, some new objects and, and specking those out is is when it tends to um, be considered to move over into the into the operator space, um, and as well as you know, um, there still needs to be that kind of custom uh, controller logic, you know, that, that it understands how all these bits and pieces that have been deployed as a part of this operator really uh, work together. You know, I think the, a, a really good example of this is the, uh, the um, Kube Prometheus library and the Prometheus operator, which will deploy all the bits and pieces of, you know, your standard Prometheus and Grafana stack, your alert manager, your Prometheus and, and your Grafana endpoints and things like that. And then, you know, a single pod um, for the operator that just kind of keeps everything in sync. So when you change a config, it restarts the pods and refreshes things where it needs to be. It just kind of keeps an eye on on things that are running. You know, you can integrate that with the um, the power of like your pod autoscalers and things like that to, to tell it to scale up when things, uh, when things happen. So it's not just... Um, custom resources, you know, you can have your non-custom things involved in there, but it's, you know, your true operator is really bringing non-native objects um, to the API and and some sort of way to manage and, and understand them natively. I always have a little bit of fear when it comes to adding complex things because, um, for example, I have a lot of experience with, with Elasticsearch, having done that at scale at previous jobs. And... I know that Elastic has an operator for Elasticsearch that you can load into your Kubernetes cluster. And then you can say, kubectl, you know, create Elasticsearch, and you give it a name, and then it goes and spins you up a cluster. And there's variables you can set for, for pieces of it. But I was so used to having my fingers in so deep into all of the different operations of Elasticsearch, because we were scaling it to a point that we honestly probably shouldn't have been. But... I'm always worried when I'm using somebody else's prepackaged anything that it's not going to cover the corner cases that I need it to cover. How much of a risk is that? Do you do you see with like the Prometheus operators and other things like that? I um, I definitely think that is a a risk that you take when you use um, code that someone else has written, especially in the in the operator context, um, especially if you have that kind of uh, custom custom use case, or like you said, just the, the pure scale in which you're running these um, elastic uh, stacks in, or, you know, whatever, insert, you know, technology here, uh, like you said, uh, Brandon, a lot of Cassandra in our past lives that, you know, maybe would have benefited from an operator. Um, and not everybody has the time to, you know, read the, the code of these operators and really understand what they're doing. Um, and so I still think that there is real benefit to you know, spinning up that stack, uh, just using, you know, your native Kubernetes objects, your stateful sets and, and things like that um, until you really get an understanding of how it performs on the Kubernetes side of things. Um, if it's something, you know, that you, you may not have a lot of experience with or it's more, you know, your standard deployment, I think that's really where where the operators uh, shine. You know, again, I'll call back that, that Prometheus operator is one that, you know, um, I didn't want to spend a lot of time plugging in all the bits and pieces and making sure Grafana was updated properly and, and syncing with Prometheus and all these things worked. Um, and it was something that was not existing in the clusters um, at the time. So, you know, it was uh, a no brainer for me to, to roll with that. I knew I wasn't going to need anything custom or things like that, but 
you know, um, in terms of rolling something very complex, you know, there's a couple Cassandra operators in existence that are being worked on right now. Um, and, and were I still using a lot of Cassandra, it's something I would be interested in, but also very, very wary of. And I really don't know what amount of testing and, you know, load testing, stress testing, and, you know, just chaos engineering would make me comfortable uh, using it. Um, you know, it's just something I would have to just at some point dive into and, and say, okay, here we go. Let's see if this operator works for me. Um, cause there's, I, you know, a lot of trial and error there. F it. We'll do it live. That's yeah. You know, <laughs> at the end of the day, it comes down to a lot of that. What are your uh, thoughts on helm charts? I am a lot, uh, I've warmed up a lot to helm. Uh, especially now that Helm 3 uh, is is there. For those, um, for those not aware, you know, back in the, the Helm 2 days, you had uh, uh, what was called Tiller running in your cluster, uh, and it was a little, you know, controller that had permissions to do a whole lot of stuff. In the early days, it was root in your, in your cluster, um, which is just a whole heck of a lot of attack surface um, in something that is rather insecure by default. So now that, that Helm 3 is really just client side and, and applying these, um, these, these charts and these templates, um, I think the Helm templating uh, language and the ability to kind of um, spec all these things out and kind of boil it down um, is really, really powerful. But uh, I will say, you know, at least from my experience and those that I've talked to, it is, um, it's rather difficult to wrap your head around at first. You know, if you're looking at, um, at Helm templates, and this is something that happens with a lot of these, these you know, templated things like Terraform and, and Helm charts and things like that, is you're, you're looking at this, this chart and it's importing this value, and so you have to go look at another file and, and look here and there. So I think it's, it's really powerful, and it's, it's you know, something akin to those operators that can deploy a, a rather complex system um, or, you know, application with all the bits and pieces that it needs um, and, you know, with your defaults or anything like that uh, in your cluster. But I think it's something that, um, at least for me, I can't glance at a Helm chart right now and understand immediately what it's doing. It takes some time to dive in and and really wrap my head around it. So I think it's got, I think it's a double-edged sword. It's, it's really powerful, um, but it's, it's, again, something that, that plagues all these these templated and you know variable things, uh, in that it's not immediately understandable at a first glance, at least in my experience. I definitely have some issues with the layers of complexity and layers of abstraction, because uh, the Kubernetes objects themselves is a large layer of abstraction, and then you apply Helm on top of that to uh, template those and, and deploy services. And then you want to do that as code, so while well, you use Helmsman on top of Helm, on top of Kubernetes objects, and the abstraction becomes really thick really quickly. Yep, I, I agree. Um, I, I think that Helm is a powerful tool, um, but much in the way I would recommend that someone maybe uh, understand some programming basics before they go diving into um, into libraries, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll mention, you know, I think, um, this will be a bit of a callback, but if somebody's learning, you know, some front end stuff before they go diving into, to jQuery, maybe understand some of the JavaScript under the hood. That's kind of how I feel with some Helm charts and a lot of these tools is wrap your head around what a deployment is and, uh, and a replica set and your, your volumes, your services, and really kind of understand what that's doing 
before you go and start throwing Helm charts around, um, either writing them or just randomly installing them. Um, because, you know, it's it's really dangerous to just start running something in your cluster that you don't know anything about. And if it does, if it breaks and you don't understand the pieces that it's really gluing together, you're going to be there for days trying to unpack it. What could possibly go wrong? You know, right? Let's just run latest and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> so another um, thing that I struggle with is I have a large background in observability and visibility and much like, you know, the status page that tells you if your company's online today, um, I kind of want some isolation between my observability stack, my status page, and the, the product that they're monitoring. Um, I don't want to be in the position where US East 1 is down and I can't update my status page, Amazon. Um, so how does that that layer of isolation work in a Kubernetes environment? Is that just separate clusters or is that just uh, relying on cross-regional um, clusters in, in a scalable fashion? So I think, um, especially with a lot of these tools, you know, a lot of my background comes from, from AWS, but I've used other cloud providers. But um, a lot of these tools for, for spinning up clusters or, or these managed services like EKS, GKE, and things like that uh, make it rather easy to be uh, multi-region from the start, you know, using COPS for AWS clusters, you just add a couple flags in and you're running in, you know, your, your multiple availability zones per, uh, per region. Um, so I think that's just a good practice for, you know, things in general. Um, yeah, totally. And if your application is, is configured properly and really ready to run in a container, it really shouldn't cause a lot of problems for your, your stack running, you know, running there. Uh, in terms of observa uh, observability monitoring, you know, that, that type of thing, um, I think those tools at a minimum, just from a security standpoint, should be, you know, living in a separate namespace, uh, you know, in your Kubernetes cluster, but at, at most, um, you know, maybe running in an entirely separate cluster, different region, different, you know, availability zone or something like that um, to really make sure that uh, if, if something happens, you're not trying to figure out is your monitoring stack down or is your application stack down. So I think there's real benefits to that separation there. Um, moving it to a separate cluster is, you know, just a, a, um, a duplication of work, you know, and that may or may not be worth it, you know, depending on the size of your organization or how much you're monitoring. You know, I've, I've seen both in, in my past lives. I've, I've run, you know, my Prometheus stacks, you know, in cluster with one, you know, one collector in a separate namespace and each cluster had its own, you know, own uh, pane of glass to watch, which is a little more work logging into it, but also maybe less work than running a, a, a separate monitoring cluster where everything was aggregated. Um, also allowed a little bit of separation of powers, you know, in terms of giving somebody access to the world and, and being able to see everything. So there's a security aspect there. Um, I'm always a big fan of using external services for status pages, you know, instead of anything you run yourself. So if you want to be able to yeah. tell your customers that your platform yeah. is down, but your status page is hosted on your platform, I'm looking at you, IBM Cloud, uh, <laughs> you won't be able to tell anybody. So, you know, I think that's one big thing, um, you know, but I, I think that there's always, you know, an inherent risk of issues running on these, on cloud platforms and things like that. And, and at least in terms of a lot of these metrics and, and logging tools, there's going to be you know, agents running in, in your cluster to collect all these things um, and, and things like that. And so, um, 
you need to take into account uh, the extra hands-on keyboards you may need to run a separate monitoring log aggregation, some sort of you know cluster for that, uh, as well as you know transfer rates. You know if you're sending data out and back in, you know uh, there's a security aspect there. There's a uh, there's a a cost both in terms of of maybe money and in time uh, for things like that. So there's a whole lot of considerations there. Um, that you might have to take into account, but I, I've done it both ways. There's there's sharp edges to both. There's always sharp edges. <laughs> always. This is cloud native, baby. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I came up in the days when we ran. You know, you, you had you, we we're trying to virtualize as much as we could back back when we actually had you know bare metal in data centers, but the monitoring stack was always always on its own dedicated hardware because you didn't want. To conflate outages, you didn't want to have other other pieces get interrupted, and then you're like, "Oh, well, is the monitoring system down, or is something else down?" And yeah, you want your tools that tell you what's broken to yeah. still work when it's broken. And yes, I, exactly. I went down this crazy rabbit hole at one point. Of we, we had gotten cell phone modems basically hooked up, so we could send SMSs from the servers, so we didn't need the network anymore at all to send alerts. And then it's like, okay, well, what happens if the cell phone towers are down? What happens if in very quickly, you re- it's diminishing returns. And we decided, okay, it's reliable enough. We're at the point that if the cell phone providers, the cell phone towers for both data centers are down at the same time, we're going to hear about it on the news. <laughs> it's like we were using two different cell networks, and if both of them are down at the same time, um, yeah, our data centers are definitely going to be down and no one cares. This the is that. are deeper than your own stuff. It's yeah. the... This world. is that paradox of, of increasing the nines in your availability, especially, you know, for, for an end user type thing, or even for a monitoring stack or something like that. You know, like you said, with the cell phone towers, there's so many things that can go wrong between point A and point B that it's diminishing returns. The, the more resilient you try to make something, you, you, you're better off shifting your, your efforts elsewhere. Well, and your money, quite frankly, because yes. all of these things cost. Because um, yeah. even if it's just time, you're paying your engineers in time. Or you pay your engineers in money, I hope. And they're spending their time very on whatever the business has decided is important. So you got to be careful with how far you let people chase down particular rabbit holes. Exactly. Yep. Time is money at the end of the day. So what are your recommendations for managing uh, Kubernetes objects? Um, I've worked with a bunch of different um, consulting clients, and everybody's kind of used and kind of understands Terraform and people just want to be able to, you know, terraform away their Kubernetes problems. And there's a really distinct boundary for me between you terraforming your infrastructure and and managing your, your Kubernetes objects as the applications and the configuration that you're running. Um, and to me, a lot of people don't really get that differentiation. And, you know, Terraform is the tool that manages everything, right? So I have um, I've done Helm charts is, in Terraform too. That's fun. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm sure. I've I this, so this is not a shot at Terraform. I have not had a, a lot of luck um, in trying to wrap my mind around how I would Terraform uh, Kubernetes objects. Um, I don't think uh, it. You know, I've I've just I'll I'll say it again. I've just not had a lot of luck with it. I think it, the first step. Um, to any of these things is you got to put uh, at least you know your your basic objects into some sort of of source control, some sort of version control, which 
isn't as common sense as a lot of people would think, um, and some people may disagree. Um, but you know, uh, having a, a deployment and a service manifest, you know, you can even put them in one long YAML file checked into into Git is a, is a really easy way to take a glance and see what should be running in the cluster. And I use the word should because depending on the permissions that various people have in your cluster, that may or may not be what is actually running, you know. So uh, in, in past roles, um, I have version controlled, you know, our deployments and things like that. Um, and as a part of our CI process, when things were merged uh, to the main branch and rolled out to production, um, a blind apply was done of a new deployment, um, stateful set, things oh, like God. that, which, yes, there are major sharp edges to that, um, especially if you are uh, either manually or auto-scaling a lot of your services. Um, you know, so we have, you know, I have inadvertently scaled down wrong. services. Yeah, <laughs> I have inadvertently scaled down services, you know, merging code to main and, and deploying a deployment that had 10 replicas when in production there were already 35 running. Um, and so, you know, you're scrambling. So there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of good uh, hygiene around deployment practices that can, that can help a lot of that. Cause again, we're all human at the end of the day. Um, I've had a lot of luck in the past with, with things like, like Helm charts. Um, there's a great um, tool called customize with a K that um, lets you customize uh, YAML files and things like that, uh, allows for overlays and, and things like that, stacking different um, requirements for uh, various environments, you know, maybe setting up some defaults and then changing them based on, you know, a dev staging and, and prod needs, things like that. So that really helps. Um, Go has a really robust templating language. Um, YTT is a new tool, um, newish tool for YAML templating that's, that I've been looking into a little bit, um, you know, so I think, um, I think the best way to, to, to solve a lot of this is to have uh, as much of that deployment stack automated as possible and remove, you know, the, the people uh, aspect of it. And that's been the same for, you know, deployment and operations for a while. It's just instead of the end goal being a, a bare metal server or a VM, now we're looking at containers and, and Kubernetes clusters, you know, so um, try your best to, you know, to version control these things. Um, and if the only tool that can deploy to production is your CI pipeline and, and, you know, engineers aren't in there randomly customizing, um, replica counts and things like that, you know, it takes a lot of, um, danger out of it, a lot of risk, but it, you're also adding in a lot of latency depending on how long it takes for your CI pipelines to run. Yeah. That is a terrible trade-off though. The, I've been in environments where the Terraform applies take five, 10 minutes. And that's if you're doing it directly yourself. So waiting for the pipeline to spool up the job to run the, the thing, it may take 30 minutes to roll back a change that you just made. So mm -hmm. you really want the ability to test it and validate it and test it again and then do really targeted applies. Definitely. But then again, now you're back into the position where an individual is able to to run the commands against the environment. And now it's chicken and egg you're, you're you're back to this place where, where you have to be really careful all the time because otherwise... that is always my fear of okay great we've got new terraform and, and kubernetes all managed by jenkins but i need to do this really targeted change to back roll something i accidentally did and two extra changes in spe in particular order mm -hmm. and yeah 
Yeah. Um, I've gotten around, you know, in, in a prior role, um, I was helping them greenfield their Kubernetes deployment. So I got to, you know, make my, make my mistakes first, um, and then try to figure things out. And we had a very small Kubernetes footprint at the time. Um, but it was, uh, you know, we, we whipped up a few, uh, CI jobs that at the end of the day would just spit out the YAML for our d deployments and services and, and check them into Git. So if at the end of the day, they were only ever really, you know, throughout the day, uh, a, a day out of date, um, and they became less relevant as we started looking into things with uh, like horizontal pod autoscalers, uh, things like that, um, where you know replica counts mattered less, and uh, it was easier to just uh, tighten the CI jobs down to patch images. You know, um, we were lucky in that we didn't really have to futz with a lot of uh, limits and, and requests. So at the end of the day, the CI job would basically bump the container, you know, version by a couple numbers, you know, whatever the latest build was, and let the, the HPA handle the, the replica counts and, and things like that. So it was a little heavy-handed and a little blind at, at times, um, but, you know, being a, I was a sole SRE, so there was, there was bigger fish to fry at the, at the time. As an aside on that, I both love being the only person in the room, and I hate being the only person in the room. Um, <laughs> There's a certain amount of, of magic latitude you get when it's just you, when you can do the thing the way you want to do the thing. But it also means that it's an echo chamber and you never get any feedback about what you could do better. So I feel you on that one. Yeah, definitely. A team of one means you're always on call, but you get to do things your way. So what is the, if you could wave a magic wand and fix like one thing about Kubernetes today without having to go through development and those kinds of cycles, what would you say this thing just fix it. Just it's done. Oh boy. Just one thing. <laughs> um, no. So I, I touched on it earlier. Um, uh, you know, I said, you know, a lot of the stuff, the security things are, are insecure by default. Um, but I think there's a, just a lot of, um, a lot of things that, that need more, more sane defaults or, or less things to configure out of the box. Um, it's a, it's a really, really powerful system, but if you start looking at all the, the knobs you can twist instead of just, you know, learning the primitives and things like that, uh, it can be really, uh, really overwhelming. You know, we touched on, on the doc site is trying to shave off those, those sharp edges as, as much as possible. But, um, I would say, you know, long, uh, long answer to a short question you know, better security defaults. Um, and, and that's something that like I've had some insight into, you know, building clusters and, and trying to secure them and things like that. Um, and then from a completely uneducated standpoint, you know, I've heard a lot of concerns and, and complaints about the way a lot of the networking works. And I know there's a lot of pushes to make a lot of that better. Um, you know, we've gone from load balancer services, moving on to ingresses and things like that. So a lot of it's improving. Um, but that's one of those things that I don't often bring up because I'm woefully underqualified to have any sort of, you know, robust opinion about it. But it's just one of the things I've heard mentioned um, in the past um, when people are being noisy is that, you know, the networking stack is either difficult or confusing or just wrong. Um, but I'm more passionate on the security side of things and, and making that easier uh, and, and safer out of the box. Cool. Thank you. Of course. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and coworkers. We would also appreciate folks taking the time to rate the show in Overcast, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory.
Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows we recorded or topics you would like us to cover. Leave us a comment on the website at operations.fm or send us your thoughts on email, feedback at operations.fm. And that wraps it up for this episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Duesendorf. I'm Ken Mink. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. And thank you once again, Seth, for joining us. I really appreciate your time and your insight. Thanks for having me, guys. Give me a call anytime. And I got thrown off by the docs formatting changes. I don't have a good joke for the end. But say, where's the whisper? <laughs> <laughs>